Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're looking at Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul has described a world that is built upon Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, he begins to contrast this world of Christ with a world that's without Christ. Keep in mind that in Ephesus, there is a temple which would challenge the temple in Jerusalem. And we might think of these two temples as two cosmic orders. And so as we talk of Jesus and sin, think big, don't think small. Think of a cosmic contrast. And so sin would constitute, and he's going to describe it as a cosmic order involving the prince of the power of the air, something that changes God into a projection of our guilt so that we don't see the real God at all. All we see in Judaism, in pagan religion, and I think in perverse forms of Christianity, we see a judge and we mistake the law for God. And God, who really is the whole meaning and purpose and point of our existence, has become a condemnation of us. God has been turned into Satan, the accuser of man, the very meaning, the paymaster, the one who weighs our deeds and condemns us, has displaced God in people's thought and very often in Christian thought. So much unreflective Christian thinking, I think is worship of Satan. Popular Christian thought is just paganism, aggravated. And so if you think of the punitive, satanic God as the only God available to the sinner, it it is very odd that the view of God as seen from the church seems to be confused with the view of God seen from hell. For damnation, it's fixed in this illusion. We're stuck forever with the God of the law, stuck forever with the God, I think, provided by our sin. Paul is going to contrast that. So let's read together. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is the Satan. He's the controlling force. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's not just saying Gentiles, but he's saying all people. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the Gentiles and Jews are no different. All once had lived lives following the prince of the power of the air. And Paul is describing an all-encompassing world order, inclusive of the pagan religion, Jewish religion. He's making no distinction. The one world was anthropocentric, we might say. It was centered on human desire, following the desires, the thought world, constituted by this desire, and the inherent condemnation 
and death. I'm just paraphrasing Paul here. Linked to this desire. This is not God's realm. This is the realm of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, or the principalities and powers of this world. And then what stands against this realm of death, and he's going to use these contrasts, you know, you've got life and death, and this is linked directly to the truth and to the life of God. God's love does not depend on what we do. Paul's is saying you're saved by grace. God takes the first step here. He doesn't care whether we are sinners or not, right? If he did, none of us would be saved. But he saves us in spite of our being sinners. Paul is describing an act of God in Christ that overrides our sin. He doesn't care about your sin. It makes no difference to him, though it may make a world of difference to you. And Paul's saying, yeah, but for God it makes no difference. And it should make no difference for you once you're in Christ. Paul does not mean that people were destined for wrath because he's talking about himself and the Christians in this case. He means that they were acting in a fallen way like those who deserved God's wrath. The principalities and powers over which Christians have now gained power. This thing doesn't control us. Christ rules from heaven. We rule with him. We've gained power over the power of death. We might say we've gained power over the perspective of hell, which controls us. Christians no longer have the perspective of God seen from the point of view of hell, of Satan. We're already seated in the seat of power and authority, which Christ exercises. And this salvation then brings light, life, and power. Paul's point is that two worlds are in place in human lives. We need to bring the argument from chapter 1 to bear on this argument that we're repeating in contrast to what we see in chapter 2. Two different realities and two different moralities are at play. Who is Jesus? We just did this. In the story of Jesus, that is the story of Trinity. That is the story of God. There's nothing secondary. There's nothing shadowy. There's nothing analogous in Jesus. Jesus is the reality of God incarnate. Jesus is an absolute. And where I'm going with this is where Paul is going with this. Once we understand this, then we can talk about an absolute truth and an absolute morality. And so the implication of Paul's focus on Christ is that we're not to identify who God is outside of the incarnation, but we begin here. We begin with Jesus because this is who God is. We have this idea that we could presume to talk about the pre-incarnate word that was non-existent in the early church. When John uses, in the beginning was the word, we know that word. What word is it? It's the word of the gospel. The word become incarnate is the only word we know. It's not that the word was in a kind of generic state and the one on the cross is removed. No, the, the identity of the word is the identity of the one on the cross. The mystery of God revealed as Trinity does not unfold from a fleshless heavenly realm, but from the concrete realm of the incarnation. This is important because we're going to understand the ethic of Jesus only if we understand the embodied nature of his ethic. There's been a serious departure in theology that we've changed the story of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, to the narrative of the word 
The simple failure here is to recognize the word is synonymous with the gospel. The word in John, the word that is Christ, the word like the gospel, you know, 1 Corinthians 1.18 is about the word of the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is the apostolic preaching. Once we've said this, then we can understand that is determinative who God is. How do we know God? We know God through Christ, through Christ Jesus. We don't know him through Greek philosophy. We don't know him on the basis of the Old Testament alone. We don't even know him, you know, there's the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word that the Jews would never pronounce. But even Jesus is called by the name of the tetragrammaton. He fills in the meaning of that name. As Cyril of Alexandria makes clear, the word refers to Jesus Christ. There is no division in the subject of Christ before and after the incarnation. He says, one is the Son, one Lord, Jesus Christ, both before the incarnation and after the incarnation. The word, the light, the life is the one who became flesh. We know what this means because Jesus Christ is the word, the life, the light. Jesus is the word in the beginning. Now there are many implications for what I'm saying. That the cross and the incarnation are eternal facts about God. Time and eternity, the human and divine, intersect in Christ. History's center is open to the imminent trinity, who God is in himself. And all of history is an unfolding of this intersection in the incarnation and in the church because we are a continuation of that story, right? So Jesus Christ is not one episode in the life of God. There is one story of God. And to imagine God, you know, this is the language of theology, that he's mysterious. Well, that may be true, but the mysteries revealed, Paul says, that he's impassive, you know, without emotion. Oh, is Christ without emotion? No, he's filled with the emotion. And so there may be a way of speaking of God apart from Jesus Christ, but the point is, as Christians, we no longer speak that way. And this then leads to a profound significance to our interaction with the Word and our participation in this story, our continuation of the Incarnation. If Christ is an eternal fact about God, this eternality is something we are participating in. The specific connections and connectedness that we develop in the body of Christ are a real-world participation in God giving our communion, our relationship, our interconnectedness, eternal significance. It leads to what we could call an absolutist sort of morality. A morality that it's not legalism, let's not go that route, nor is it simply situational ethics, a kind of vague affirmation of love, but it's built upon the absolute that God is in Christ and the significance which Paul describes. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. How have you been brought near? By the body of Christ, by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The implication of the incarnation is that we now know that absolutes abide in history. There is an absolute morality, an absolute truth in Christ that we're no longer pitted against one another through a dividing wall. 
in which the people on the other side of the wall get different treatment than the people on this side of the wall. Given the circumstance, some people thought it would be okay to kill Christ. The Jews agreed, we have no king but Caesar, and thus we want to crucify Christ. Maybe because we have no king but Caesar, no president but Trump, or maybe because we have a hellish theology in which God must be tortured to save us from hell, we are caught up in a circumstance that determines our ethic. And if someone said, oh, we're going to have a baby roast and a gathering of, you know, we'll gather up some local children and boil them. Well, probably you should immediately call the police, right? But what if I explained that these are children that are foreign children? They're in Syria. They're in Iran. They're in Iraq. They're the children of the enemy to be killed in a bombing raid. Understand that the morality of our situation, of our country, is such that we would boil the children alive because we do a little evil that the greater good might be achieved. Well, you say, that's different. But once we get the fact that we have to do with absolutes, that the absolute has entered history, that God became a man, and people felt that they had to kill him, According to their ethic of the temple, their Jewish ethic, we get the picture. Paul is not describing legalism. That will result in evil. That's the very thing that killed Christ. But there are some things that we must never under any circumstances do, right? I think it is possible to formulate a prohibition. We have an absolute in Christ. We live, though, at a time among Christians who believe, given the right circumstance, evil is necessary. Slaughtering the innocent, well, it's unfortunate, but necessary. My point is the New Testament is telling us our circumstance is changed up. We do not kill God. We never, in other words, that's the point. We should have never engaged in a morality that would pit us against Christ. But that puts us in a whole new situation where this world is determined by the incarnate Christ. Absolute values inhere in this world. There is a world where law might reign or where it has not yet been determined what love would do. All we have to decide, you know, when we get in that circumstance. But as Christians, we do not live in such a world. What we should do is determined. And what we should not do is determined. Why are you his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them? What good works? The works of Jesus, the works of Christ. The good works that we are to do flow from the absolute, which is the body of Christ. And notice that it is Christ Jesus, the incarnate Christ, Paul just keeps bringing us back to the body of Christ. His human body is the source of significant behavior. Can you do love without your body? Eat, drink, be filled. No, you have to provide the food. You have to give the water. You have to embody the love of God. Not from a transcendent law or a vague situational principle, but from our embodied circumstance. I think a constant temptation for Christians pictures a self inside of the body and using it as a kind of mechanical instrument. The voice in my head or the, the soul inside is like an announcer 
inside a radio station, you know, as if we are not our body, or as if we could have a disembodied love. To give absolute significance to Jesus Christ is to say that embodiment, incarnation, his body, and our participation in his body, not simply a medium, but a source of significance. And so the best picture of the soul is the body. It is because there are human bodies that there is a world of communion and communication and that it is by my bodiliness that I belong to this world. And those who build their lives on death and hell presume that the embodied circumstance is secondary. Without a body, I am absent. In other words, that's what's happening. We're disincarnate from a particular circumstance. This is what happens to the dead. Paul calls this the law of sin and death. And so we would absent ourselves from prime reality and absolute morality. The bodily resurrection of Christ asserts that he is present. Let's conclude. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's their situation, alienated from God, alienated from God's covenant community. But now in Christ Jesus, and Paul always will tie the two words together, Christ Jesus, who you were formerly were far off, you have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself, his body, is our peace, who made both groups into one. There was a circumstance in which the world of the Jew was divided. There's Jews and Gentiles. But every person's world was divided. But this barrier of the dividing wall has been abolished in his flesh. The enmity, which is the law of commandments, the law, legalism, ordinances, they're abolished so that in himself, where is our ethic, where is our truth, where is our community? It is in himself, in his body, in himself he might make the two into the one new man. Thus establishing peace. That's the goal and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, the condemnation. So we're drawn into the body, into a circumstance that is no longer divided, my situation over and against your situation. As long as there is a dividing wall, babies will be boiled, people will be killed, Christ would be crucified, and the ethic is, well, we must do evil that good may abound. In this, the love of God, Paul says, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. We only know of the love of God in the bodily life of Christ and primarily, of course, through our sacramental sharing in the bodily life of the risen Christ. I think we all exist in many circumstances. We all have different communities of people. But the picture is that we now have a different circumstance. It's not simply to do justice or determine morality or truth based on one selected context. Do I at the deepest level exist among the people I meet, this group, or amongst 
humankind. So we can misunderstand, I think. We always have to account for the neighbor and who is the neighbor. Well, apparently there's no barriers anymore. Let me conclude, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. This house, this people, this family is not exclusive, not private, not divided, but of infinite proportions of universal circumference in which evil, violence, war, enemies, and wrath have no place. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.